And the rest of us today are going to be in the New Testament book of 1 Timothy in the fourth chapter. So you can go ahead and turn there now with me if you'd like to do that. The reason we're in 1 Timothy 4 is because it helps us bridge a little bit of a gap. Um, So we're going to pause our study of the gospel according to John today. Uh, It bridges the gap in the sense that it, it helps us to know what to do. If you're like me, I'm learning all of these stunning things about Jesus week in and week out. I'm loving the study. I'm loving the preaching. Uh, I'm hopefully loving Christ more. But it does sort of bring up the question again and again, and that's, so what should I, what should I do? Yes, Jesus is faithful. He always sticks to the plan. He's loyal to his Father to the very end. He's loyal to his own, to his sheep, to the very end. Jesus is awesome. And I just keep saying Jesus is awesome, right? It's like, oh, I want to worship him. Oh, I want to believe in him. I want to trust in him because he's trustworthy. But there is this kind of compelling desire to, to then say, but, but now what should I do? And that's a good desire. That's a good thing. In some ways, I want to say, do nothing. Continue to to rest in Him. But believers before us and believers like us say, what should we do? What should we do as a church? This This is extraordinary. And to answer, at least one answer would be, quoting from the Apostle Paul, is you would want to serve Him. You would want to serve Him well as, as a, a loyal sheep, if you will, one who's been bought with a price and you belong to Him and so you want to loyally serve Him. You want to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And the Apostle Paul talks about that in the fourth chapter of First Timothy. Now I have to confess to you, um, I'm killing two birds with one stone. I was studying First Timothy 4, preparing to, for a pastoral address, addressing a pastor. Um, and I've been studying First Timothy 4, and I thought, this is super helpful. It gives us a break from John, but it also helps to kind of scratch that itch when we say, well, what should we do with all of this, this greatness? Well, what we should do is we should seek to be good servants uh, of Christ. And so that's what First Timothy 4 is about. Um, we'll look at 10, 10, yeah, I'm not sure where I went to school. I graduated from Northwest High School in 1987. 10 points. <laughs> we'll look at 10 characteristics of a good servant of Christ. So if you're taking notes, 10 characteristics of a good servant of Christ. Some will take longer than others. We'll go super fast at certain times. But 10 characteristics of a good servant of Christ, all in First Timothy chapter 4, helping us out. Now, I will say, since it is Timothy, it's written to a pastor first. And so at first, he's addressing only Timothy, but then he, he even tells Timothy, the Apostle Paul does, to broaden it to the entire church. And so we'll, we'll kind of follow suit. Uh, these are very pastoral, and yet the pastor is to include everyone in on them. So when I say he, 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 it's because Timothy was the first audience. Um, by application, hopefully it would include each of us who are believers. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and start with these 10 characteristics. Number one, he warns about liars. He warns about liars. Sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? When pastors are supposed to be open and affirming of all things above all else and to be nice above all else, first thing on the list, he's to be a warner. And the church is to be a warning church if 
the pastor is going to be a faithful servant. Let's go ahead and see in verse 6. We'll come back to 1 to 5, but let's look at 6. If you put these things, we'll go back to verses 1 to 5 to see these things, but if you put these things before the brothers, before the brethren, before the, the believers in Christ, if you put them before them, literally, if you lay them down in front of them so they can see, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. That's where I got the good servant idea. You want to be a good servant? You want to honor the Lord for what He's done? Well, as a church, as a pastor, as a believer, one thing you will do is you will lay these things down in front of the people so they can see them clearly for what they are. And that these things are spiritual lies. Verses 1 to 5 talk about spiritual lies promoted by people who want to say, Jesus is good, but you've got to do these extra things. If you really want God to accept you, you've got to do this and this and this. We know the Bible doesn't say this, but if you're really going to live by higher life principles, we've got lists for you. Well, that ends up being an attack on the sufficiency of Christ. It's a lie, and a faithful pastor, and by extension, a faithful church, a faithful believer, will say, these are lies, okay? So let's look at the first five verses to see what he means by the these things, Verse 1, now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith. Okay, the faith meaning uh, it's, it's objective, the faith of, Christ, uh, of Christianity. Some will depart, some will uh, apostatize if you want to put it in those terms. How do they do this? Devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Got to warn about those who, who have that kind of devotion. I thought it was kind of interesting the way it's really translated where it says devoting themselves. That makes sense because if you devote yourselves to something, you pay attention to it. And I think that's how, what's meant. But literally the word is used in other cases to be in a state of alert. Really the idea is to pay attention. But it's interesting that the Apostle Paul is talking about these who pr promote these lies. And they, they are people who give attention to things that aren't true, to demonic doctrines. But maybe we can be literal for effect. They're on the alert for lies, these false teachers are. They're excited. They're just waiting for the next bad book to be published. Okay? There, there's, there's a devotion, there's a dedication the same exact word is translated in 1 Timothy 3, 8, addicted, okay? Where deacons aren't to be addicted to much wine as a qualification, same word. These false teachers, they're, lie, they're addicted to lies. They, they, they just savor and wait and are eager for these kinds of lies. They're bad. They're to be warned about. And this is what the liars say. Look at verse 3, who forbid marriage. And require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. As one, one of my former pastors said, one of my former pastors said, that's it? I, I thought they were going to be deniers of the Trinity or like something big. And probably making the argument that even if you, do, you add these simple kind of extra rules, that, that, those are lies. You can't tell people that they, if they really want to be extra godly, then they're not going to get married. And they're going to show everyone how really godly they are. No, that, that's a lie. 
to say if you're, if you're really committed, if you're really a godly Christian, then here's the diet you'll follow and you won't eat these certain foods. That makes the list of, list of demonic doctrine. Because the Bible doesn't say those things. Certainly doesn't say those things of believers who are in Christ who's sufficient to save without these things. I don't know if I read all of verse 3 or not. I'm in a hurry. Um, that God created to be received with thanksgiving. These are things from God. We're calling things from God that are good, bad. That's not good by those who believe and know the truth. If you know the truth, you know you're not bound by that. How about verse 4? For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it was made holy by the word of God in prayer. Likely just two examples. The list could go on. But a faithful servant of Christ is going to say to the people, stay away from those who say extra rules, extra regulations, and if you do enough and perform well enough, then God will accept you. Because in the greater context of our book, that's an undermining, it's an attack on the sufficiency of Christ, who alone is the great Savior. So my job as a pastor is to say, it's poison. Stay away. It's bad. Ready to move on to number two? Let's go to the next one. Another characteristic of a faithful servant, a good servant of Christ, he doesn't ignore the Spirit. He doesn't ignore the Spirit. Maybe it sounds kind of weird, but you'll see it's in our text. He doesn't ignore the Spirit. The irony is a lot of times the false teachers say, the Spirit told me this. I know this because God told me, and this is from the Spirit. You don't really listen to the Spirit. I listen to the Spirit. A lot of times, ironically, that's what false teachers say, and the Apostle Paul is saying the opposite. A good, loyal servant of Christ listens to the Spirit. Look there in verse 1 again. Now the Spirit expressly, clearly, blatantly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith. The Spirit's made clear that apostasy is real. Apostasy comes from listening to liars, people who, who, who push the eject button, who walk away. The Spirit expressly says this is a problem. That's why we're going to get to the fact that you need to teach the right thing, not the wrong thing, because apostasy is real. It's expressly taught. Commentators think that what is meant here is, or the reference here is actually referring to what Jesus said at the end of his earthly ministry when he warned about false Christs who would come. And it's in the spirit of Christ that this happens. Regardless of whether that's what Paul means here, there's good arguments for that. We're not going to get into it. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of Christ. So it would complement what Jesus said in Matthew 24. False Christs and false prophets so they say they're telling the truth, but they're not, will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So they will be such good liars that many people will follow them. Apostasy is a real problem. The faithful servant of Christ believes that and knows that because it's been made clear by the Spirit in the Bible, even from Jesus himself. So we're not playing games here. It's, apostasy is real. This calls for sobriety. And I know it because I've listened to the Spirit. And hopefully you have as well. Think about this. If I pretend like apostasy isn't real, 
I'm either spiritually deaf because he's expressly said this, or I'm spiritually self-consumed, arrogant, and prideful because I know the Spirit said that, but I'm going to pretend like it's not true. So if we're going to be faithful in light of all that Christ has done, we've got to know that there will be false Christs who mislead people. Look at the top 50 Christian books selling this month. No, please don't. I found at least four that would at least not be spiritually harmful. I mean, it's like, are, are, you, are you totally kidding me? It's amazing. Amazing. Apostasy is a real problem. It has been. It is. Even in our day. We should move on to number three. Faithful servant of Christ Jesus. He trains in objective gospel truth. He trains in objective gospel truth. Here's what I mean. I I put five stars by this one. Because this is the positive. This is how you can spot the apostate. This is how you can spot the lie and be able to do these things. Look at verse 6 with me. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being, ah, here's how you're able to do this. Being trained, this doesn't come naturally, in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. I say objective because it's trained in the words of the faith. Does he say it both? Yeah, the words of the faith. Used frequently by the Apostle Paul, frequently in the New Testament, to talk about the objective. We're not talking about our faith. We're talking about the faith. Sometimes theologians say that objective body of Christian doctrine, Christian teaching, the truth about Christ, the truth about his life, the truth about his death, the truth about his resurrection, and other things, the truth about who he is. It's the faith. Jude says in Jude 3, the once and for all delivered to the saints. It's not being delivered ongoingly. The once and for all having been delivered would be literal to the saints' faith. The reality is about Christ, okay? The faithful servant of Christ is trained on those objective realities. They're prioritized. And he he goes on to say, if you look there, of the good doctrine, the good teaching. So you've got the faith, and he's really being redundant. And then you have the teaching regarding the faith, the doctrine, the good doctrine. It's what people need. They need to know the truth about Jesus, the objective truth about Jesus. And then he says, that you have followed. So it doesn't start with Timothy. It's not new, in other words. It's not novel. Here's what I've come up with. No, it's it's been followed. It's the nature of the objective, objectivity of it. This is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus accomplished. This is what it means. We get to the doctrine side of things. If we know those things, then we can know what's true and what's not true. We're on our way to not being apostate. This doesn't mean the subjective isn't good or real or biblical or Christian. We experience things. We have feelings. Christianity is personal, relating to us personally. 
But before it's personal, it's outside of us, objective, what Christ has done. Oh, yes, we trust in him. We experience the new birth and all of these other things. But even those things are are objective realities. Before we move on to the next one, this this perhaps is a good time to stop and and say, this is a great time to see what what the good and faithful servant isn't called to do. this This is pretty focused. This is pretty narrow. This is what you do. This is what you focus on. I think that helps. It helps us to not have an identity crisis helps us to not to try to have to chase everything. No, Christianity, first and foremost, is about Christ. So let's know the faith regarding the Christ and the meaning regarding the Christ, which is the good doctrine that's been followed. It's not new. This is exciting for me. I'm, I'm glad for that. Okay, Jesus did these things. What, what should I do? Well, one thing I need to do is be trained in the faith and train others in the faith. It's not going to change. How about number four, a fourth characteristic of a faithful servant, a good servant? He avoids the ridiculous. He avoids the ridiculous. We see this in a simple statement in verse seven. Have nothing, there's the avoidance, to do with irreverent, silly myths. It's about all we need to say for that one. Have have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. If that sounds like a slam, I think it is a slam. These false teachers who are trying to come in and whisper in their ear, or maybe not even whisper, and here's what we have, something new, something different, what about this, what about that? And the Apostle Paul relegates them to irreverent, silly myths. Doesn't mean the people were stupid, they may have been very smart. And he says, you know what, that has a category, it's an irreverent, silly myth. It's a slam. And by the way, anything in comparison to the faith, the once and for all delivered faith, the good doctrine, anything would fit the other category if it says, oh, you've got to have this too. You've got to have that too. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter how smart anyone is. It's, you know what, that's actually, that's a silly myth. Yeah, but I experienced this. It's a silly myth. If it's in conflict. Seems pretty harsh, I know. What Paul doesn't say to Timothy, that there are things to be learned from all faith traditions. No, he calls them to be a myth buster. Maybe a myth avoider. Hopefully the only thing you hear in my sermons when it comes to this sort of thing would be holding them up for examples of something you should stay away from. That would fit our text. Let's keep going. Number five, he prioritizes the eternal. 
He prioritizes the eternal. Verse 7 goes on to say, Rather, here's the positive, train yourself for godliness. And then he's going to go on to talk about godliness is related to the eternal, not the here and now, best now, all of these things that are now. No, you're looking forward and it's an eternal thing. Train yourself, discipline yourself for that. And I want to keep going rather quickly, but I can't help but at least stop and say a lot of times this statement, train yourself for, it's translated sometimes discipline yourself for, ends up being a launching pad for the very opposite of what our text is teaching. Because we say, yeah, we know we have Jesus. And so I'm going to take this statement out of context. The context is all about the gospel and all about Jesus, but I'm going to take it from its context and I'm going to say, you must do all of these spiritual disciplines, otherwise God won't accept you or God won't be happy with you. So interesting, in our text, the spiritual discipline has to do with the faith the doctrine, the truth regarding Christ and resting and trusting in Him. And that's what you continue to disciple yourself in. It's interesting that way. It's important that we see that. Let's keep going. Verse 8, For while bodily training is of of some value, that's maybe my favorite verse in the Bible, Um, (laughs) for while... Addictive personality, I like exercise. For, for while bodily training is of some value, I remind my wife, it does say some. <laughs> Let me go work out. That almost su- sounded like I was suggesting that she should be working out, and I didn't mean it that way. So, I'm the one with the problem, not her. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It's the eternal kind of perspective. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope We have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially, or that is, of those who believe. Paul's maybe even using the verbiage that the higher life false teachers would use about striving, toiling. We're extra godly, so we do without, and we're so committed. We're we're, we're like the monks, and we're extra committed, so we're closer to God than you are, and we've had these experiences. He's like, no, no. We toil and we strive, but we're toiling and striving regarding Christ and His work and His person because that's going to last forever, because that has to do with eternal life. That's going to matter in the end. And by the way, that's the best benefit you could experience in the here and now. So where they want Christians like you and me to move past the gospel, because that's really effective, the Apostle Paul is saying we labor and we strive, but actually our target is... Christ and not moving past Christ. Now, I want to pose the question, what's the training consist of? Because again, I've got lists, and let me give you a list. Here's what your training regimen is going to look like. But I think we should, before we get creative and come up with our own list, And there are other good things to do that are biblical things to do, but the Apostle Paul doesn't go there. So first and foremost, the list should be very short. 
And we can answer the question, what does the training consist of in our text? Because in verse 6, if we go back, it says, a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained. Oh, if we're going to train ourselves for godliness, he told us in our text what he means, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. He does not give a huge long list of do's and don'ts, and here's what training looks like to live the higher life Christian life. And when I say higher life, that's because people have used that in the past of, yeah, we know the Bible says this, but we're going to take it to the next level. And Paul's saying the elevator only has one floor, and it's glorious. Train yourself there. It's the 101 level class and it's the 901 level class or whatever the highest is going to be. You don't move past. To further support that, if you go back to 316, which we read in our scripture reading, it also says the same thing in a different way. Great indeed, we confess, this is 3.16, we confess is the mystery of godliness. Oh, in our text, training for godliness. What's it look like? Well, the mystery of godliness. And then he, he just tells the gospel. So our level of godliness doesn't ever move past Calvary. That's actually where we want to live and breathe and have our being and go deep and wide And this makes me excited because I feel so guilty sometimes. Because you've got a better list than I've got. And you read some mystic monk from Monkville somewhere. And man, that that, that life, that's a, man, that's quite the life. Going without all of this stuff and vows of this and vows of that. And you went on your pilgrimage to go and discover all this stuff. And I'm thinking, my pilgrimage takes me to the Missouri River. I got nothing. I want to have godliness like you have godliness because you've got all these extra go-withouts and go-withs. The Apostle Paul is clear that godliness is in Christ. It's not Christ plus or Christ minus. Godliness is in Christ. And again, that kind of feels like, well, hurry up and do nothing. No, he's calling for action, but it's the action in the devotion to Christ. In the faith and the doctrine, the meaning, the significance. And I, I, it makes me think of in, oh, I think I have it written down somewhere, or not, Ephesians 2.7. Ephesians 2.7 talks about the immeasurable grace, the immeasurable riches, the immeasurable mercy that is found in Christ. I like that because it's immeasurable. In other words, you're, you're, you're never going to exhaust it. As soon as we say, yeah, I figured that one out, I need to move on to... No. Prioritizes the eternal. The gospel.
I'm going to quote one of my brother's uh, recent tweets from Twitter because I liked it. He took a lot of flack for it. My brother's a pastor in Massachusetts. He said, resolved, this is his New Year's tweet, resolved, I will not stress myself out in 2017 to imitate Edward's law-heavy resolutions. Jonathan Edwards with his famous resolutions. I resolve I will do this. I resolve I will do this. I resolve I will do this. And a lot of them are awesome. But a little bit of pushback is I'm going to resolve myself in 2017 not to try to do those. Guilt, 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 guilt. And maybe focus more on going deep when it comes to the things of Christ. A little bit of pushback. But we are prone to wonder, give me stuff, give me lists, I'm going to do these things. Yeah, let's do this. Let's focus on the eternal. Let's focus on the finished work of Christ and His amazing riches. Number six, another characteristic, He implores or urges believers to the same. He calls others, other believers to do the same. Okay, this one will come in one statement. We'll move on to the next. Verse 11, command and teach these things. So it's not just for the pastor. It's actually for the pastor and then it's for everybody. And it's for everybody even with some force. This is what you've got to be doing. This is how it is. This is what's right. This is what is good. You might know, not know that it's what's good, but it's what's good. Command and teach these things. Explain them. Told you it'd be fast. Number seven. By the way, I'm inviting you all to the party, right? Yeah, this should be our focus. Jesus is awesome in the gospel according to John. What should we do? Well, trust in him, rest in him, and seek to be a faithful, a good servant of him. Number seven, he is an atypical example. He's an atypical example, not your ordinary example, this faithful, I keep saying faithful, good, good servant. Verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth. Timothy, relatively young pastor, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. That's an atypical example. Because on the face of it, a young person in so many ways is not a good example for an old person. Because young people don't know as much as older people. This is why the Bible talks about gray hair being associated with wisdom. So we want to learn from those who are older than us. So our best examples, not always, but as a general truism, our best examples are not young people. Our best examples are old people because they've done it, tried, failed, succeeded. They have experience. Here, Timothy is to be an atypical example, which goes to the point of the objectivity of his ministry. Timothy 
Don't let anybody look down on your youth. Well, how am I going to do that? If I keep telling everybody how to live their life, and here are seven ways to be successful at this, and 14 ways to do this, and here's how you do this, and here's how you do that, and here's... He can't know that stuff. He can't know that stuff as well as somebody who's older than him can know it, generally speaking. But if the focus of his ministry as a pastor, which is what it's supposed to be, is on the faith regarding Christ and the doctrine, the teaching, and that's the focus, that's what's consuming, that's what's, what, what's is, is got a hold of him, he could actually be an example. And it's, it's changed my life. It's shaped my life. It's shaped my behavior. And now you actually have a place for young people being able to be examples in this way to older people. See, if it's not about something objective, then we would never, ever, ever, ever want young Timothy a pastor. Because he wouldn't know anything. Overstatement, I know. But see, he's not pointing to himself. He's pointing to Christ, and when he is pointing to himself, he's saying, hey, this, this, is, this is what I do. Yeah, but what about this other pa- issue, Pastor? What about this other issue, Pastor? What about, th- I don't know. I'm young. What about this? What about this over here? What about this certain uh, worldview kind of, I, I don't know. Ask someone who's older. Ask someone who's an expert in those things. I, I don't know about these things. My guitar has one string. It's just what I do. By the way, I sound like I'm just trashing young people. If you're young, the Bible actually talks about the importance of the young and the old because the young have the energy and the old have the know-how. We need each other. I'll do that in a different sermon for a different time. But the Bible commends youth and it commends... I won't say old people because that's offensive. Wisdom. (laughs) They go together. They're both important. Let's go to the next one. Are we on number eight? Number eight, he keeps church boring. The faithful pastor, the the loyal servant, the loyal servant of Christ keeps church boring. You'll see, watch. Look at verse 13. Until I come, the apostle Paul says, devote yourself. Don't waver. You just keep doing this. Here's what you do. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, that would be commands in light of the scripture, like believe and repent, trust Jesus, to teaching, that would be explaining the faith and the doctrine. There you go. Until an apostle shows up at Omaha Bible Church, which will be never, this is what we should do. I wonder what's going to happen at church this week. Man, is there going to be a Ferrari? What's it going to be? Is the pastor and his wife going to sit on the end of a bed and do a series on sex and relationships? These are just real things that happen, by the way. No. It's going to be boring. What I mean is predictable. Guess what's going to happen? It's going to be the same thing as last week. Oh, man. Awesome. 
but boring, predictable in a good way. Because what we're focusing on is the same great, immeasurable, rich, extraordinary Christ who matters for time and eternity. And so he calls him to be predictable, to do these things. And the temptation's going to come, right? It's for sure going to come. Verse 14 says, do not neglect the gift you have. I think it's purposely together. You're going to be tempted to do this, Timothy, but don't do it. Don't neglect the gift you have. It's going to be the gift of teaching, which was given to you by prophecy, authority, when the council of elders laid hands on you, laid their hands on you. If the one who is gifted to explain the doctrine and the faith doesn't do that, but does other things, it's bad. It's, that's criminal negligence in the spiritual realm. Because not only is he not doing the very thing that God has gifted him to do, he's withholding that from the people who need to be reminded and told these things and equipped for these things. So it's a good reminder, Timothy, to remember that this, this, is, this, is, this is what you have. You are not an expert in, all, in relationships and all of these other things that are important, and there are experts in those things. You stick to what you have to do, in a sense, I dare I say, what only you will do, that's what you do. Your, your, don't neglect your gift by trying to masquerade and pretend like you have everybody else's gift. It's what people need whether they know it or not. And it's the one thing that will last forever. This really is wonderful too because it, it, it hopefully keeps, you know, the person up front with, 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 from having the total megalomaniac personality. I know all things and everything is about me. And I'm like, I, I, have no, I, I don't have no idea <laughs> how to speak English. There are many people who are believers who are gifted in many other areas. There are many people who are not believers who are made in God, God's image who know lots of things. Go learn. And the church gets in these weird times where the church meets all of your needs. And you don't get that sense at all. It meets one need that's going to help you with your other things. Absolutely. Some of the Protestant reformers would talk about locking the church doors on every day other than Sunday. Think about that. Because the church is not trying to meet everyone's needs and be everything. More often than not, the world is better than the church at most things anyway. We just try to ape the culture and say, we can do it. And then we bring our unbelieving friends who actually have taste and they're like, that was terrible. Okay, I'm being a little bit harsh now. We're called to mainly do one thing. This is a hard adjustment for some of you. I know it's a hard adjustment for me because too many of my Christian years were lived in a holy huddle. And so it's, it's hard, I know. It's hard to make friends. So you come to Omaha Bible Church and you want all your friends to be part of Omaha Bible Church because you're not very good at making friends. 
It's true for some of us. And then you got the pastor up front saying we should lock the doors during the week. We're not going to. And now you've got to learn how to make friends with other people and, you know, maybe with an unbeliever. And so it's a hard adjustment. We're, we're, having, to, we're having to correct from some bad history where you go to church to get your oil changed, you go to church to buy coffee, you go to church to do yoga, you go to church to... What in the world are we doing? You can get a better yoga studio than here. You can get better coffee. Well, never. <laughs> okay, I'm saying too much, and that's what pastors do, so I'm going to move on. Church should be boring. Um, number nine, he never stops practicing. He never stops practicing. Verse 15, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Present tense. Just keep doing these things. Okay? Keep practicing these things. Isn't it interesting? He's basically saying, never do anything different, but keep practicing what you do. Just keep focused on it. Keep practicing. To the point where people will say, there's growth. There's growth in what you're helping us with in the depth and, and seeing these things. You keep doing the same thing, but we can see that there's progress in sameness. I love it. I would want that to be true in your life. It's still the faith. It's still the doctrine. Progress in these things. Okay, number 10. He is vigilant. He is vigilant. Verse 16 says, keep close watch. There's the vigilant idea. Keep close watch. on yourself, and on the teaching. The word can literally be used, and it is used in other places in the New Testament, um, to not leave. You go to a city and you don't leave that city. You stay there. When it comes to the teaching, when it comes to the things we're talking about, you stay there. Now, he means mentally, right? The focus, and you, you never move beyond that. It's not so much in a literal sense, but the literal is kind of a good picture. The picture I think of is you plant your flag. You plant your flag on Mount Zion and it doesn't go anywhere else. And it's just going to be there no matter what to the very end vigilantly, regardless, no neglecting. It's the focus, it's the attention, it's what consumes you. How about verse 16 where it goes on to say, persist in this. Persist in this kind of vigilance. Keep doing this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. How about that? Salvation by vigilance. We should start a new religion. You will save yourself and you will save your hearers greater context from what? From apostasy. Because you're committed to this. You'll spare them the grief and the heartache and the calamity and all of these things by keeping this focus from apostasy. Yes, it's true. God keeps us. Yes, all those things are true. But he uses human means. And here he's using the means of a good servant. Next week at Omaha Bible Church, 
we plan to bore you to tears. That's not true. But what we do plan to do is be in another text of Scripture, learning more of the the lay of the land, learning more detail, some special aspect, some certain angle, but it's going to be about God's great, redemptive, eternal plan with Christ at the center of it all. It'll be about the faith, and it'll be about the doctrine, and it'll be good for us and helpful for us and hopefully helpful for others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the fact that we can be good servants of Christ, ultimately because of His virtue, not ours. And we're thankful for that. My prayer for the men and women and the boys and girls who are here, that they might believe in Jesus, to rest in Him, and then by Your grace be committed to these things, pursuing being a good servant, offering a fitting response to Him. Thank you for your grace and for your mercy, for the people of God gathered here today. In Jesus' name, amen.